verse 31, into Acts chapter 5, verse 11. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his, wife, <clears throat> with his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Thanks, Gail. Um, do you keep Acts in front of you? Uh, I'm going to pray, and then I've got a little challenge for you uh, as we begin our time together. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you so much uh, that yours are the words of eternal life. Father, thank you that uh, what we get to hear this morning is what we need more than anything else, uh, to hear from you, the living God, uh, to be pointed to the Lord Jesus, uh, and to have your spirit working in us uh, as we do that. So Father, thank you, uh, and we pray that you be with us this morning uh, as we hear you speak. Amen. The challenge I have for you this morning uh, as we begin is uh, either in your head or with the person next to you or the person at home that you're sitting in the lounge with if you're watching online, see if you can um, answer the question, what is the church in one sentence? We've been thinking about the church a lot. What is the church? Have a go. See if you can answer that in one sentence. I'll give you 30 seconds. Think about it. Talk to the person next to you. What is the church?
Great. Hopefully, hopefully you could think of something. It's a bit like the kind of what is the gospel question, isn't it? Uh, imagine you're stuck in a lift and you have to say, and someone says, what is this church thing? What is it? And you've got 30 seconds before the lift doors open for you to say what the church is. And people will answer that in all sorts of different ways, won't they? For some, the church is a building. It might be a nice old building, the kind of one that you would go and visit on holiday. It might be a big, not churchy looking building like this one. But whatever it happens to look like, for some, the church is a building. For others, it's an institution, an organisation a group of like-minded people, all with a a common purpose, a common goal. Uh, For others, it's uh, a community, uh, a place to belong, uh, a place to to build friendships and relationships with other people. There are all sorts of ways that we might answer the question, what is the church? Uh, And as we come to Acts chapter 4, we see that the word church is used for the first time in the book so far. You can see it there in 4 verse 11. 4 verse 11 is the first time that the word church is used, but it's not the first time that it's been spoken about, is it? We've seen as we've gone through the book of Acts, that as the name of Jesus is proclaimed, and as people come to believe in him, that the church is built. And Luke throughout has been giving us these these glimpses, these snapshots of what it means to be a church, what, what the gathering of God's people looks like day to day. And that brings us to our passage today, where we get another of Luke's snapshots, another picture of the believer's life together, a picture of church. However, this time, as you probably picked up from the reading, it, it's not all good news. This time we see the church not only faces danger from the outside that we saw last week, from opposition and persecution, but also danger from within. And so this morning we're first going to think about a model for us to follow, and then we're going to think about a danger for us to avoid. A model and a danger when it comes to answering this question, what is the church? So first, let's look at the model It's there in verses 32 to 37. And we see that the church is marked by gospel-driven generosity. Gospel-driven generosity. Like I said, this is not the first time that that Luke has described the life of these early believers, the church. If you can remember back to chapter 2, end of chapter 2, we saw something very similar, didn't we? At the end of chapter 2 and here in chapter 4, we see a part of a description of the church. And Luke says it's the apostles and the apostles' teaching that is central, that is foundational to the building of this church. So back in 2 verse 42, if you can remember, we read that the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. 2 verse 43 said that everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And now here in chapter 4, Luke says similar. He says it's with great power the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then at the end, uh, in 5 verse 12, it says the apostles performed many signs and wonders. 
And so Luke has been showing us right from the very beginning that, that Jesus builds his church through his chosen, commissioned apostles and through the proclamation of the gospel, the good news that they taught. And if you can think even further back, we saw that in Ephesians, didn't we? Ephesians last term, Ephesians 2.19, Paul writes, You are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so Luke and Paul, they say, it's as the true, authentic, apostolic gospel is proclaimed that the church is built. And it's through that same gospel that a unity and a love is grown within the church. And that's what we see happening in verse 32. At the start of our passage, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. You see, it's through the gospel that believers in Jesus are brought together and united in him. Again, we saw that in Ephesians, didn't we? The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then Paul continues by saying, it's in Christ that you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. And so you see, the church is built on and united in the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. There is no other foundation. There is no other means by which God has given us to build his church. The gospel is central. But then next we see that this unity, this, this oneness of heart and mind, it's expressed in a radical generosity. Just look at verse 32 again. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. You see what Luke is saying? The unity and love the believers experience in Christ radically alters the way they view their possessions. And so rather as seeing all of their belongings as their things, things to be used for their personal comfort or their gain, these believers, they began to see everything they had as, as gifts from God, gifts to be used for the good of others. So just look at the end of verse 33. It says that God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there was no needy person among them. John Piper puts this helpfully when he says there are two effects of believing in Jesus that we find in these verses. Uh, the first is that believing in Jesus tightens the heart's relationship to people, especially to other Christians. And so when you become united to Jesus by faith, you become united to his people in love. And then second, believing in Jesus means that the heart is loosened in its relationship to things. In other words, faith in Jesus means that we care less and less about our possessions and we care more and more about his people. That's what we see happening in verse 34. Just look there. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them 
brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Through the gospel, through God's grace, these believers are freed from the love of possessions. In such a way, they're willing to sell what they have if that means their church family is cared for, that there is no one in need. And then verse 36, Luke points us to an example, to to Joseph, or to use his nickname, Barnabas, the man who encouraged the believers, not just in the things that he said, but in the things that he did, in his acts of sacrificial generosity towards those in need. And so here in these few verses is the model for us to follow. Here is a picture of the church, a picture of what the gospel produces in the lives of God's people. Which means, as a church, the big question we need to ask ourselves is, is this us? Are we marked by gospel-driven generosity? Are we committed to actively loving our brothers and sisters at CEC? I mentioned briefly at at the prayer meeting on Tuesday night, I, I think this is a particular challenge for us at the moment. Lockdown, as we've just heard from Gail, has led to a massive increase in people's needs. That might be financially, It might be relationally, it might be emotionally, it might be spiritually. But people are more in need, more isolated and more in trouble than they have been for some time. That's the case in society in general, but it's also the case right here in our church. I've had numerous conversations over the past few months with people in our church family who feel isolated and lonely people who are worried about job security and finances, people who are struggling spiritually. In other words, there are people in need. And so the question for us individually and collectively is whether we are caring for those people. Whether like the believers here in Acts 4, we're using our time, our energy, our money, our possessions for the good of others. And we do need to be clear as we say that, don't we, that the Acts 4 shows us it's the gospel that is the source of that generosity. Verse 33 says, it was God's grace so powerfully at work in the hearts of the believers that they, they lived in this way. Which means that whenever we open up the Bible, whenever we look at God's word together, whenever we hear the gospel proclaimed, we need to pray that that God's grace would be so powerfully at work in us that it would be changing us and the result would be that there is no needy person among us. We need to pray that as a church, our unity in Christ would be expressed in a practical, sacrificial, generous love for each other. That's the the model we're to follow, gospel-driven generosity. But then as as we move into chapter 5, we we see the warning, don't we? You see, it can be really easy for us to have this kind of rose-tinted view of the early church. To think, if only we we could go back then, everything was great all of the time back then. 
we just need to get back there. But Luke wants us to see that that's not the case. There were problems and dangers back then, just as there are today. And so in chapter 5, we see the warning. The warning to watch out for sin-driven hypocrisy. Sin-driven hypocrisy. At 5 verse 1, we meet another couple in the church, Ananias and Sapphira. And just like Barnabas, these two decide to sell some of their property to give the money to the church. So far, so good. But then there's a problem. Just look at verse 2 with me. With his wife's full knowledge, he, that's Ananias, kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest to the apostles' feet. We're not, we're not told the motive. Maybe it was greed. Maybe it was jealousy of the encourager Barnabas. Maybe it was a desire to be thought well of, to get a cool nickname like him too. But for whatever reason, Ananias and Sapphira, they, they try to deceive Paul, uh, Peter and the other apostles. Uh, they want to give just some of the money, but pretend that it's all of the money. Uh, but Peter, he, he's not fooled. He sees straight through the deception. And so in verse 3, he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and kept for yourself some of the money you receive for the land. Uh, Peter looks at the, the couple's gift there in front of him and then he exposes their hearts. Uh, he sees that their actions, they, they don't come from hearts filled by the Spirit, but as he says, hearts filled by Satan. And in exposing them, he shows this is not like Barnabas. This is not another example of gospel-driven generosity. No, this is sin-driven hypocrisy. You see, Ananias and Sapphira were, were under no compulsion to give. Did you notice that in verse 4? Peter says to them, look, you didn't have to sell anything. You could have kept your house, your field. You could have kept everything. You could have sold it and given some of the money. You didn't have to give it all. No one was forcing you to do anything, says Peter. And so the sin here, it's not, it's not about the size of the gift. No, the sin is deceit. It's the hypocrisy of their actions. Thinking they can pretend to the church and pretend to God that they are something that they're not. And so Peter says at the end of verse 4, what made you think of doing such a thing? You've not just lied to human beings, you've lied to God. And then in verse 5, Ananias dies. Just like that. He drops down dead. The people are understandably filled with fear. And then just to hammer home the point, the same thing happens to Sapphira when she comes in, in verse 9. And so this is a, it's a shocking moment for the life of these early believers. Verse 11 says that great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. It was a shocking moment for them back then. And I imagine it's a shocking moment for us too. At least it should be, shouldn't it? You see, the consistent message of the Bible is that sin is serious. 
It's serious because it's an offence against a holy God. That's Peter's point here, isn't it? He says, you've not just lied to people, you've lied to God. Your sin is against God. And that means it's serious. A quick way to illustrate that would be, uh, if I told you that, that if on the way to church uh, I ran over a snail, I ran over a snail, I didn't mean to, um, but I did it. I don't imagine you'd be that bothered, would you? You probably wouldn't go out here and out of here and, and phone the RSPCA. But, but what if I told you I ran over a cat or a dog? And then I told you I did it on purpose. Suddenly you'd be a little bit more upset. It's a bit more serious. What if it was a child? You see, as the value of the victim increases, so does the seriousness of the crime. And so when our crime, when the crime is against an infinitely valuable, perfectly holy God, well then that is incredibly serious. Sin is serious. And so here, just as the church is getting going, as people are being saved and, and learning what it means to live spirit-filled lives together, God reminds them, he warns them not to take sin lightly. Last week, Steve said that the opposition from the religious leaders was like a Mike Tyson punch in the face for the church. If that's the case, then I think chapter 5 is like the sneaky uppercut. Much less obvious, much harder to see coming, but, but no less dangerous. We tend to think that the great danger to the church comes from the outside, from opposition and persecution. But here we see there's an equally great danger from within. Sin is serious. And if it's allowed to grow and to spread, then it can destroy the church. And so right here, right in its early days, God gives the church a wake-up call. Don't mess around with sin. And the obvious question for us at this point is, well, should we expect the same sort of thing to happen today? <laughs> It would make for a very different harvest offering this morning if a few of you dropped down dead because you pretended to give more than you did. So should we expect that to happen? Is that what's going to go on on a gift day? As you can probably guess, I think the answer is no. Luke's description of what happens to Ananias and Sapphira is exactly that. It's a description. This is another example of a a one-off event in the book of Acts, an event that really did happen, but that is unique to a particular time in the lives of God's people, in the life of the church. However, the fact that this event is unique does not mean we should feel its impact any less. God is the same God. He takes sin seriously. The church is his church, and he cares about its holiness very much. And ultimately, we know how much he cares, not, not just because of Ananias and Sapphira, but because of Jesus. You see, in the end, 
sin is so serious that the only way that God could deal with it was through the death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. Only the death of God's son was enough to pay the price of our crimes against an infinitely valuable, perfectly holy God. And so the gospel, well, the gospel should show us that God does take sin seriously. It is not a joke to him. He takes it so seriously that Christ had to die for it. God takes sin seriously, and so should we. We need to listen to the warning of Acts 5. And we need to be honest with ourselves about the reality of sin in our lives. You see, the big problem for Ananias and Sapphira was hypocrisy, wasn't it? Pretending they're something that they're not. And hypocrisy remains a danger for us in the Christian life. It is dangerous for us and God is not fooled by it. He sees past our pretense. He sees past the show that we put on for others. God sees our hearts. He sees our hidden sin. And just like Ananias and Sapphira, our sin deserves his judgment. It, it deserves death. And yet the wonderful truth of the gospel, the amazing truth of the gospel is that God knows the very depths of our sin even more than we know it ourselves. But in Christ, his grace is deeper still. God looks at us desperately trying to put on a good show, desperately trying to convince ourselves, convince others, even convince him that we're better than we really are. And he says, give it up. Stop pretending. Stop kidding yourself. Admit your sin. Confess your sin. Bring it to Jesus. Repent. Turn to him and know the one who wipes your sins out completely. Don't let hypocrisy, don't let pretending stop you from coming to God in repentance and faith. Don't let it stop you from knowing the, the wonderful reality of your sins forgiven completely. And don't let hypocrisy prevent you from deep, grace-filled relationships with each other. You see, we can be really good, can't we, at giving the impression that church is a place for people who have got life sorted. We, we put on our Sunday best, we, we threaten and bribe our kids in the hope they're going to hold it together for just one hour on Sunday morning. We get very good at smiling and saying, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm fine, thank you, whenever anyone asks how we're doing. And so often we do those things in this effort to, to present ourselves as together as sorted Christians. Just like Ananias and Sapphira, we, we want people to think well of us. But as well as being honest with God, we need to be honest with each other. You see, there's not, the truth is that there isn't a single person in this room or, or watching at home that is not a failure. There is not a single person, as you look around, who is able to live up to their own standards, let alone God's. And so please don't think, if you're new to, to church or to Christianity, please don't think that, 
that church is a place for people who have got life sorted. And if you're not new to Christianity, if you are part of the church, if you are a Christian, please don't give the impression that church is for a place of people who have got life sorted. Because we don't. We are all sinners. And we need to be open and honest about that fact. And I'm not saying that that we need to lay out all of our deepest, darkest sins with everyone that we meet. The, the well would be a pretty intense place for a coffee if we did that every time, wouldn't it? But there is this level of openness and honesty that we do need to have with each other. Because sin is serious. And as a church, we need to take it seriously. Not minimising it, not hiding it, not ignoring it or pretending it's no big deal but confessing it, admitting it to ourselves, to to each other, and most importantly, to God. And as we do that, as we confess our sin, we can be absolutely certain that as the Apostle John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful And he is just and he will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we want to uh, come before you this morning and confess our sins to you. Father, we confess the sins uh, of hypocrisy, of pretense, of trying to fake the Christian life. Father, we are sorry for when we care more about what other people think than what you think. But Father, we thank you so much for the gospel of your grace. We thank you so much for the good news of Jesus Christ. Thank you so much that he came and bore that cost, bore the penalty our sin deserves, bore the death and judgment that we deserve so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know at the refreshment and the joy of our sins being wiped out completely. Father, would that free us? Would that free us to live open and honest lives in front of each other? Would that free us from any sense of pretending or hypocrisy? Would your grace be so powerfully at work in us that we live our lives for the good of others and for your glory? And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.